Hey, this is Nick DiMatteo from Music Is Not A Genre. I just wanted to take a minute to talk to you about the service I use to record and distribute my podcasts. If you haven't heard about Anchor, let me tell you from experience, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Here's why. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. So please take a moment out. If you are planning to create, record, and distribute podcasts, take a look at Anchor. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey, I'm Nick DiMatteo, and welcome to Season 5, Episode 11 of Music Is Not a Genre. Thank you, as always, for watching and listening. Don't forget, you can support this podcast at patreon.com slash musicisnotagenre or anchor.fm slash musicisnotagenre. My public hub is youtube.com slash nickdimatteo or, as I keep saying, youtube.com slash at musicisnotagenre. Handy tag. My website is nickdimatteo.com, where you get the podcasts and music and everything else. And as always, the thing nearest to my heart, please support and listen to my band, Rec, at recarea.bandcamp.com. For those of you newbies in there, Rec is spelled R-E-C, or you can stream Rec's music anywhere. Let's get to this week's topic uh, again, and I'm going to keep saying this until it's not true anymore, but this is... Again, another extra special episode of MXG. No hand gestures. You know, lucky you people only listening, you get to not miss the hand gestures that I have never really figured out. I'm still waiting for more audience feedback as to what the best hand gestures are for MXG. Music is not a genre. This week's topic, let's get to it. Pearl Jam, the new classic rock, or... Who was your first grunge love? So I've done some grunge before, you know. I did some, sadly, a lot were associated with Death is Dumb. I did Alice in Chains. I did uh, Soundgarden, Stone Temple Pilots. Uh, You know, from that era, there's still, I did Nirvana. There's still a few more to do. And this was really the big one that I was kind of holding off. And I realize now it was sort of the same reason I was holding off my uh, recently begun six-part episode on the Beatles, and that is it was just too overwhelming to me. As you people watching can see, and, and I'll describe it to those of you just listening, there's a stack of CDs and even a cassette here of my Pearl Jam collection. It's not everything, and you may know why, because I stopped buying physical music about 10 years ago, but it's almost everything. So, you know, you can imagine how overwhelming this was. Pearl Jam is one of those seminal grunge bands that stemmed actually out of uh, two of the members of the band, Stone Gossard, Jeff Emmett, uh, were in the band Green River, which really is the kind of proto-grunge band of any band. I've mentioned them before. I don't know a whole lot about it. I've heard some of their music, but worth looking into because it shows that grunge existed before grunge existed. And I say this about so many things in music, how... Rock and roll existed before the term was coined. You know, it existed in the 40s. You know, 
Uh, and grunge existed in the 80s, even though it's associated with the 90s. So Green River, Mother Love Bone, you know, they both of those guys were in those bands. The, those bands, you know, uh, broke up or the, you know, singer Mother Love Bone died. That's why they did the, te- the Temple of the Dog. Uh, it was a tribute and all of that. They bring on Mike McCready and find Eddie Vedder, I believe, through a cassette audition. Cassette! And eventually, uh, Dave Krusen was their first drummer. And at the time, they were called Mookie Blaylock. And and as always, I'm only going through a very quick history here because this is not necessarily meant to be a comprehensive historical podcast. In case anybody doesn't know this or knows Pearl Jam might miss some of these things, that's what this is for. You can always look up more, as I do. Mookie Blaylock was an NBA basketball player, and to me, it was like a joke name. You know, it's very Gen X to do something like that. I mean, it's sort of like how Stone Temple Pilots' original name was Mighty Joe Young, or, you know. Um, they were prompted to change their name, and they changed it to Pearl Jam. And even though the, uh, you know, whiz- the, you know, I don't know, the wisdom or the conventional wisdom is that the name came from great grandmother Pearl's jam or jelly. It's not true. It it was a made-up story. Uh, I I don't really know why they chose the word Pearl, but Jam was sort of an homage uh, to Neil Young, who they ended up working with uh, in 95 and have always, you know, absolutely loved. And and in some ways, and I'll get into this a little bit later, Pearl Jam is a, a jam band. They're not a jam band in the sense of Grateful Dead or Fish, thankfully to my mind but you your your mileage may vary but they do have some of that jam quality to them and that's awesome they also are to me sort of the uh the figurehead of of grunge in a lot of ways some people might say that's true uh about nirvana and it was always sort of that one two punch especially right there in the beginning even though the other bands existed nirvana and pearl jam really rose to fame more quickly and to me, it was always that similar kind of Beatles Stones feel, you know, where Nirvana had the more concise songs and the shorter career and and uh, and the songwriting. And they weren't really, you know, they were into recording techniques and stuff. And then Pearl Jam, long, extensive career, uh, you know, and I'm loosely saying that that's more Stones like you. You may disagree with all this. And that's why I love to hear from all of you to know that you disagree. And then, you know. Yeah, to know that you disagree. And I know that you agree. Uh, and to me, they were sort of, you know, the more, in a lot of ways, I, I guess you could call them more palatable grunge band. And Nirvana was very brash and in your face. And again, this is not a judgment thing. This is more how culturally they were seen. But but I think that when people think of grunge, they often think of, like, let's say you were to imitate grunge. You would sing like this, you know, and that to me is... Because of Eddie Vedder, you know, he was kind of the first vocalist of that era anyway to sing that way. And then it was copied by bands like Stone Temp- early Stone Temple Pilots. Uh, Wyland's voice would change a lot, as I mentioned in that podcast episode. Candlebox and uh, other bands like that really took on that kind of, you know, Eddie Vedder voice. There's a, some of my earlier recordings were kind of like that too until I realized that's not where my voice sits, you know? And really for out of the gate, and I'm going to do a discography very soon, 
didn't stay very long in one place. They showed that 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 kind of shifting, and and this is why I say there's there's these are the reasons I say that they're the new classic rock. First of all, if you're a Gen Xer or a fan of grunge, you have to admit now that this is this is oldies in a way. You know, I don't the term oldies is sort of all over the place now. You know, but to me, if if some people and people we've met can call early 2000s music oldies, then you can certainly call early 90s music oldies. So grunge is oldies, you know, and it is played alongside classic rock in that format. If you still listen to radio or any mixes or playlists, do classic rock, you'll often hear, uh, if it's a broader mix, grunge things, things from the 80s and 90s, even though for me growing up, classic rock was, you know, 60s and 70s, or at least late 60s and 70s. They've been around for over 30 years, and they're still not just still at it, but still creatively at it. And I've said this before, and I think it bears repeating. A band that doesn't just fall back on its old catalog and become a tribute to itself is is a band that's still alive, and pun intended. And Pearl Jam is, you know, I think the standard bearer for that kind of staying alive in many ways other you, other bands have done it uh, just as well but pearl jam has a certain quality about the way they approach music they've never really compromised anything and they've never released a bad album you can have agreements or disagreements as to the shifts that they've made musically and lyrically in their career and adding or subtracting sounds, changing the guitar sound to a large degree after the first few albums. I'll, I'll talk about my what I think of are their three phases. But there are bands that have been around for 30 years or more who have gone through some real growing pains and either tried to hit the market in a certain way, you know, uh, or tried something that didn't quite work. And either way, that's not what happened with Pearl Jam. They always stayed pretty much true to their form, even with their changes in experimentation. And I'll talk about how broad they really were later on and never put out anything that's cringeworthy, you know, and and that's fine, too. You know, there are a lot of bands that I like who have put out albums or songs that have been kind of cringeworthy and I still love them because I love the band, you know. And then the other reason I think that Pearl Jam is a classic rock band is because of all of the grunge bands, they're the ones who incorporated that 70s rock sound more than anyone else. To me, they are the true marriage of punk and classic rock. They have that punk edge to them. They did a lot of things that had that punk edge, but their approach and often their sound and often the way they structure music is very classic rock oriented, you know. And they did incorporate sounds from every era of rock, really from the late 60s, uh, big time in the 70s, certainly a few things from the 80s, which that was sort of their, you know, genesis, even though they, they didn't technically start till 1990 and beyond, you know. So dispute me if you don't if you don't agree, but classic rock like Led Zeppelin and all of that is still classic rock. This is just the next phase of adding to that. And, uh, you know, God help us all when uh, Limp Bizkit gets added to that mix. Anyway, um, unless you're a Limp Bizkit fan, then congratulations. They're classic rock too. 
So, yes, Pearl Jam, we talk about where their name sort of came from. And, and the other thing that makes them classics and awesome is that they're an excellent live band. They always have been. They always bring it in the way uh, a Bruce Springsteen uh, brings it or the way Prince brought it. There, there was never just going through the motions or doing even a short show. They come out there and they just, you know, pound it. And that's why they have, in some ways, kind of that jam band feel. They let themselves loose on stage, but still bring the, the good music and the good songs. And they're, I think, probably, and you can, you know, find facts that tell me I'm wrong, have the greatest amount of live bootleg recordings of any non-jam band. I could be wrong, you know. I mean, no one's going to be Grateful Dead and, and all of that stuff. And I think Fish, too, I'm not sure. Not really a fan. But I'm sure they have bootlegs as well. But, Pearl, you know, any any band that warrants live bootleg recordings is doing something interesting live. And, and that's, you know, what I think of Pearl Jam. They're... Uh, reputation, especially in the first, you know, half of their career was in some ways very U2-like. And I, and the reason I say that is this, they had a big sound and they took themselves very seriously. And both of those bands would go through phases where they would shake it up, change their sound, uh, get more intimate in some ways and add new sounds and do things that were a little less uh, over-serious or self-serious. And again, this is not a judgment. I happen to love that if it's done well but i think that they had that again another reason that you could call them classic i mean hell you two is classic rock and uh and yeah i have i'm looking at my notes here and i think there are a couple other things i'll mention before i get to the discography and that is for some of their career i'll be honest i felt uncomfortable with the way they were shifting and changing in the same way that I felt uncomfortable with Radiohead. And in hindsight, I think a lot of the changes that we are experiencing in real time aren't quite as severe as we think they are. And again, I'll mention that later when I get to that part of their career. But I do remember thinking, ah, just like any fan, you know, you respect when a band goes somewhere different, but you kind of want to, you know, have that feel of what you heard first. And when I get to 10, you'll you'll understand more what I'm talking about there. And then the last thing is that they have always been very ethical and very fan-based and very, uh, you, know, uh, you know, activism, political activism, social activism. They were a part of that whole Ticketmaster thing where they tried to keep ticket costs down. Uh, I guess that was sort of a mixed result. But they've always tried to do more than just be great musicians who put out great music. So anything else I want to say about them, I'm just going to do through the discography. Let me get right to it, right? So you, those of you watching are the ones getting the treat. But for those of you listening, I'm going to do this. You ready? You hear that sound? That's the sound of uh, the percussive sound of a cassette. Pearl Jam, 10. I bought on cassette. I was still buying cassettes back then. And... Why did I title this new classic rock who was your, your first grunge love or whatever it was I said? Because Pearl Jam was my first grunge love. Uh, at the time, 
I had been listening to, ironically, a lot of classic rock and other pop stuff and things that were holdovers from the 90s or bands that I had already been into and and wasn't really seeking out or getting into a lot of newer music. And then listening to the radio in the car, I heard the song Even Flow. And I still remember that moment. I don't remember the day or the location, but I remember the moment of hearing Even Flow and thinking, oh, wow, okay. I need to figure this out more and I need to get more into this. It woke me back up to uh, contemporary music and I never looked back. You know, to this day, I'm always still seeking out, you know, new music to some degree. And I think it was because it may have been more than just this song, but really in my memory, it was because of this one song, Even Flow, that had the kick the the fullness of seventies rock and the kick of eighties metal and the and that and the and and certainly the uh, punk energy and yet broke into a major key in the chorus. Just I hadn't really heard anything like it, you know. And now ten classic album. I'm not going to go through all my favorites on that because it it would be ridiculous. But I will say the highlights for for me, even flow of course, alive. Which, by the way, you get a double treat in this podcast. At the end of the podcast, of course, is one of my songs that was influenced in part by Pearl Jam. And I'll talk about that later. But after that, if you stick around, you will hear as a listener or see as a viewer my acoustic, live acoustic version, my performance of Pearl Jam's song Alive, which I did uh, as part of my grunge set during the pandemic. So... Uh, that's how much this all meant to me. The song Black, the song Why Go, the song Jeremy, whose lyrics I misinterpreted. You'll hear in next week's episode, my interview with Kevin Stroud, uh, how there's a term called Mondegreen, which is about misinterpreting lyrics. And Jeremy's chorus was something that I misinterpreted so badly that when I realized I got the words wrong, I kind of liked my words anyway and created an entire song around my misinterpreted lyrics. Uh, you'll hear, uh, it was, it's called Clearly Spoken, Clearly Said. It's on my SoundCloud page if you want to hear it. But that's what I thought Eddie Vedder was singing. Uh, clearly spoken, clearly said, you know. And he wasn't. We know Jeremy spoke in class today. Uh, then he killed a lot of people. Which brings me to Yellow Ledbetter. Not on the album, but Come on, of all the songs that you can think of uh, in A God of the Vita or Louie Louie, where the lyrics are kind of hard to understand, to me, in some ways, Yellow Ledbetter is at the top because it sounds so much like it's just full English. And for most of the time I knew this song, I assumed that it was intentionally meant to be gibberish. Then I find that there are actual lyrics there. And yet, even in the internet age, no one is quite sure what the lyrics are to this song. There are a couple different interpretations, and I believe that's partly because Eddie Vedder has changed the lyrics live to suit certain uh, topics and, and eras and stuff. But, you know, I don't know. Call me up, Eddie. Tell me if I'm wrong. And State of Love and Trust, which was a great single from this period, and it was on the soundtrack to the movie Singles, which was that this was the double whammy for me, which was that I heard Pearl Jam and then I saw the movie singles and I should have gotten that cassette. It's back there somewhere. But that album got me into the rest of what was going on at the at the time, that movie and that album. Uh, Alice's 
Alice in Chains' Wood is on there. Paul Westerberg's Dyslexic, Dyslexic Heart. State of Love and Trust, Pearl Jam. Nearly Lost You, Screaming Trees, which was one of my favorite songs of that year. Uh, you know, and so that was the classic 10, right? Dave Krusen leaves. Uh, Matt Chamberlain comes in for a little bit of a blip. Plays with them for a few weeks. He's also a drummer uh, for, was a drummer for Edie Brickell, which I didn't know. And I was actually really into Edie Brickell when that first album came out a few years before. So an interesting connection. But then you have, how can they follow up 10 with another awesome album? Versus. See, I'm in the CD era now. So there's Versus for those of you watchers. And I'll unfold this while I'm talking a little bit. It's like one of those unboxing, you know, freaking videos. This is another love for me, this album. Tens of Love versus is an absolute love. Uh, There was no love lost for Pearl Jam when this came out for me. It just deepened, you know. Uh, Dave Abrusets was the uh, drummer and, you know, a little pride there being part Italian uh, and was the drummer also on the next album, which I'll get to soon. And this this was part of their first phase. They were still very much the band of ten, but started to widen their sound a little bit. They had more breadth in their their sound, more breadth in their sounds. And uh, the favorites for me on this album, Animal, A Daughter, of course, Glorified G, Dissident. Oh, my God. Dissident is one that that could have been on 10, you know. Rearview Mirror, Elderly Woman Behind the Counter in a Small Town. Excellent. Fiona Apple-esque title, and just a great album all, all through and through to listen to. But those are kind of my faves. And kind of rounding out their uh, first phase was Vitalogy, which at the time was was seen, it was, I believe, somewhat controversial. Look, there's cardboard still in here. That's how well-kept this is. This is one of those, uh, you know, packaging, uh, CD packages where they were deliberately trying to get away from the use of plastic, you know? And I, I think the first one I remember doing that, certainly probably not the first historically, was uh, Sting's Soul Cages. And I always thought that was cool, except when I tried to fit it into a CD case <laughs> and it was a different shape and I couldn't fit it in. But they've always been known for their just beautiful, interesting packaging, whether it was the the, the physical nature of it, uh, the look of it, the photographs any visuals you'll see that as i share some of this and yeah vitalogy to me again another love and as strong as versus as strong as 10 it it you know there's a little bit more again widening you know though the, these shifts into different phases are never as abrupt as we remember them being but this this still really had the sound and quality of verses uh, and in, in some ways of 10 my favorite songs there are uh, there, spin the black circle, not for you, nothing man, and better man. And like young bands, they were putting out albums every couple of years, and they continued that for longer than a lot of young bands. And the next one was uh, No Code. And look at this. I mean, if you don't know this packaging, first of all, just the there's something intriguing about the all of the photographs and what they mean and how they're put together. And then you have a package within a package, which is the, the there's actual like or maybe recreated, but Polaroids in here, which I haven't opened this much. So they're still in incredible condition. 
Uh, and I'm happy to see that considering we had a flood last year and no code really was the beginning to me of phase two, you know, it was a like for me. I remember is not a love. This is that time I was saying I started to get a little uncomfortable, you know, um, Dave Abrutsace had left, uh, Jack Irons, who was the first Red Hot Chili Peppers drummer came on for this album and the following album. And this was really when they tr- they transitioned out of grunge. And what a good time to do that. Because at this point, a lot of grunge was kind of getting warmed over uh, by the mid-late 90s. And they knew as musicians that they needed to follow their muse and not the trends of the day. And they've never really done that, even though they still continue to have hits. And they were just too restless. And they had, you know, they were too artistically curious, let's say. Uh, and this is where I'm sorry, there was some more dissonance in the chords they used, and they certainly experimented more even with structure and things like that. That actually became a real influence in my next phase as a musician. There were songs, uh, Chippy Please, Three People, A Puzzle, which were more intricate, but still had that uh, dark and straight, straight ahead grunge quality. But really, this album and uh, ushered in the end of the grunge era for me because I remember that feeling of, oh man, that's over, you know. And like I said, we get so caught up in the small changes as they happen. We think they're much bigger than they are, but hindsight and perspective shows us that there is way more consistency. If you listen to Vitalogy and then No Code and then Yield, you're not going to hear three different bands or even two different bands. You're going to hear the same band doing slightly different things that we just got up in arms about because they weren't, you know, exact recreations of the things that we loved. You know, like I said, slightly weirder chords or chord changes, different guitar sounds. The thing is this, it almost doesn't matter what a band does because at a certain point, for I think that initial rush of hearing the band for the first time is hard, if not impossible, to recreate, you know. And the more time goes on, uh, I don't know. You can revisit it later in life and realize that that rush is still there in some way, but it's never it's never going to be quite as exciting as the first time you heard it. Uh, the caveat there being the thing I call the share tingles, which is if you're sharing something like that with someone else and they have never heard it before and they get the same response, you kind of feel that vicariously, you know. But part of it is when a band or a type of music's cultural moment has moved on, you don't feel like you're sharing, again, sharing the rush with the world at large. You don't feel like you're part of this movement. You know, you may still have been into, oh God, I don't know, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young in the mid-70s, but their moment had passed in the early 70s. And it doesn't mean they were any better or worse it's that the world wasn't wasn't there with you feeling that same energy. And when we listen back to Pearl Jam, we find in the grand scheme of music, none of it is all that experimental. I mean, Radiohead got more experimental, certainly, than Pearl Jam did. Not to not give credit to the fact that they were and are experimental and have always broadened what they do and experimented in ways that we may not catch as listeners or even as musicians. So they nudged a genre convention, you know, big deal. Again, they never went through an ugly period. Like Rush, I listened to all of Rush. And 
they had they had a kind of an interesting beginning and not not finding their sound yet found their sound were incredible went through some real growing pains and i think put out some tough albums and then found themselves again chicago different trajectory you know lost a key member changed their sound once changed it again completely and had different kind of success never found their original sound to really any degree in my mind Pearl Jam never went through any of that. Uh, but to get back to uh, <laughs> this album here, uh, No Code, I had to re-listen to it to get my favorites. This is some of these albums I had just had to re-listen to. Uh, this one, I not a lot of it came back to me, but my favorites were Who You Are, In My Tree, Habit, Love the Raw Vocals and Habit, and my new favorite off of this album is the song Mankind, which I read... A reviewer saying, oh, Stone Gossard did lead vocals. How terrible. Um, I think the fact that it sounds so different from other stuff that Pearl Jam was doing and has done is to its credit and had a great energy, you know. And I actually, I think I think I put Mankind on my mix for this year because I do that with mixes. It's not just from out songs from the year. It's things that uh, pique my interest in a certain way, which gets us to the next album. Big one for me. Big one. Yield. The Yield Sign. The Vista. Another awesome packaging. The third in a series that did not use plastic or used minimal plastic. Let's, if we're trying to be honest, look at that. Great. This has almost a Joshua Tree feel to it in the way it has the darkness and the Vista and all of that. And this is not only an album I love, it's my favorite. To this day, it's my favorite Pearl Jam album, Yield. And it was very influential to me, not just musically, but when I saw, oh, they can just call an album a very well-known term off of a well-known, you know, iconic sign. It got me thinking at a time in my career where I was still calling myself Nick that I wanted to uh, change my sound and get to a more band-oriented feel, and I needed a name. And a few years later, I come up with the name Wreck, and it was absolutely influenced by that idea of, well, what's something that people see all the time? Yield sign, Wreck, as in a record button. Even on your phone, you're seeing that, right? And so many other ways. And make a logo with it and all of that stuff. So there was a real connection there, you know. Also, let just let me quick note on Brendan O'Brien, one of my all-time favorite producers of any kind of music, but certainly of this kind of music. A lot of my favorite albums from the 90s and O's are because of Brendan O'Brien. And he worked uh, a lot uh, with Pearl Jam. He's their most uh, frequent producer and even has credits on things that he didn't technically produce. Uh and he, his sound has always been full and crunchy and up front and still had depth. It's, it's really just everything about it is something, you know, that I love. And this album, Yield, also, you know, in some ways was a return to their earlier form, but with more maturity and with more nuance and showed them growing again, but had that force to it. And it was the album that just sealed, you know, with no code, my thought was, I don't know where they're going. They might go in a direction that I won't follow. And then Yield comes, and my mind said, I'm going to follow this band forever, no matter what they do. I think there's an album like that for everybody. I think there are 
I think there's two two albums for everyone, every listener, every serious listener, any band. The first album is what's the one that got you into the band? You know, like for me, for you two, it was Unforgettable Fire. For uh, The Cure, it was Head on the Door, whatever it is. And doesn't have to be their first release is what I'm saying. And then the second album, the, let's say there's three. The second one is when do you realize that they're changing and they're not the band they were? And like I said, for me, Pearl Jam was no code. And then the third one is, if there's a third, and there's not always a third, the third one is what's the one that makes you a lifer, that turns that artist that you like or love into a heart artist, another MXG freeze. And that was yield for me. Uh, when I re-listened to this, and I did have to re-listen to it, I remembered almost all of it, which just tells me how much I loved it. You know, um, my absolute top favorite, and here's why I'm not even going to list the songs. Uh, where did I put it? Oh, there it is. And that is, I started listing favorites, and I listed every single one except for the track Low Light. And Low Light's fine. It's just not one of my favorites, but that's, I think the only album of theirs where I just went and, you know, listed almost every single one in hiding is probably my favorite. If you're asking, and I know you are, which gets us to 2000, uh, and a new drummer and, uh, it's still part of phase two. This is really their truer, a kind of experimental break. Look at this packaging again. Very minimal plastic. Uh, I like the binaural. They were they were experimenting with binaural mixes, binaural sound. Look up binaural if you're not sure what it is. Uh, some great pictures in here and lyrics and things like that. Things that you might miss from physical music. If you're on my newsletter group, I'm going to be sending out a questionnaire soon about physical music. Two, two questions. Survey. Uh, but... That's something that I do miss, whether it was sitting at home or driving in the car, being able to reference lyrics or look at the picture and get a fuller sense of the world that the band was creating. This album was uh, a like for me, a great album. It, 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 you know, they really went more experimental on this. One of their more, or if not most experimental, Matt Cameron came on as the drummer and Let's stop and just moment of silence for Matt Cameron. Ready? One, two. There it was. Because he was in Pearl Jam and Soundgarden simultaneously as their principal drummers. Drummer. As their principal drummer. One guy. Two mega major bands. And he was their drummer. And of course, he stuck with both of them until you know Soundgarden had to fold and is still with. Pearl Jam. So a couple of decades there. Absolutely amazing. And we, if you don't know his work, then you know it now. It's an amazing drummer. Again, had to re-listen. My favorites, uh, Breaker Fall. Love that song. God's Dice, sort of like Light Years and Parting Ways. Thin Air, big favorite. Insignificance and Rival. And that's all I need to say really about that album. The next one, again, another, you know, they never really went back to uh, uh, plastic. So here's another one, Trifold, Riot Act from 2002. Interesting period in music. I just released 
a five CD mix that I did in 2002. And it just shows what a kind of a crossroads the 2000s were for popular music, how rock and power pop and that kind of pop were still popular. But uh, hip hop and EDM were surging in a way that they would eventually take over the charts. But that whole 10 year period, both all of that music was present all at once. And it was kind of amazing. So uh, this is an album I didn't realize or had forgotten that I actually love. Uh, They continued the shift, right, from their epic big rock to more punk sound, the the punkier guitar, more intimacy, uh, a little bit more experimentalism. This is a top five album for me, I wrote, although my top fives are pretty fluid, but I believe that's true. My favorite songs off of that, Can't Keep, Save You, Bam, Ghost, I Am Mine, Bam, Thumbing My Way, Beautiful, Get Right, and Bush Leaguer, just because it's so of its time. That's sort of like, how could it not be a favorite? And I I remember the song. I, I did have to re-listen. Several of these did come back to me. Not as strongly as Yield, but more strongly than, let's say, No Code or uh, Binaural. So then we get to 2003, not part of their principal catalog, Lost Dogs, kind of the B-sides and things they didn't release. Other stuff, again, beautiful. This is a quadrifold. Uh, again, minimal plastic. And this is just, it's just another beautiful insert there with all the details that you could possibly want. More reference to... Polaroids. If you look at the eyes there, it. I think this is one of the greater names for an odds and ends uh, album uh, collection, Lost Dogs. And it's a really nice collection. It shows range. It shows the, the changes they went through. And it has a song on there that I believe was their biggest hit. Uh, if, yeah, I think it's there was their biggest hit and still is their biggest hit that they recorded during the yield period but never released. They released it on this. It's called Last Kiss. It's a cover of an older song. And it shows that even successful bands often uh, suffer from the cover song syndrome. You know, and any musician has created music, and I won't, I'll say suffer lightly, goes through this realization that no matter how good your own original music is, oftentimes it's a song that you've covered that becomes more successful, partly because people know it better, but partly because there's a freedom of interpretation that happens when you're taking somebody else's music and making it your own. And the thing is, Last Kiss, great version of song, and also a real signal that they left that grunge era behind, you know. And we'll get to the end of the phase two, or as I call it, the uh, this is the Avocado album. Boy, what seers they were of the future, and, and avocados becoming popular. This was their self-titled album, Pearl Jam. Again, beautiful, trifold, minimal plastic packaging, uh, and and the same sort of insert here, but more. There's a more kind of a darker, almost more artistic, artistic uh, bent to the insert, not not as uh, as photography. And this is a love album for me. Uh, a couple of likes in there so far, but this is a this is a love. It proved that both Grunge's and Pearl Jam's moment had passed, and I say that because it was a great album. It was a return to form. 
and it had almost no impact on the culture. And I remember it honestly having, sadly, almost no impact on me. You know, maybe I had moved on in some ways temporarily, but it was a way that they had kind of gotten back to more straightforward in some ways. And yet over 15 years in existence and still just destroying it with energy and creative interests and all of that. Not every, I think the reason why this is a a love, but I don't remember it as well, is that not every song sticks with me. And yet every song is so good and their sound so good. So the, my favorites off of this, Life Wasted, Worldwide Suicide, which I did remember, Comatose, Severed Hand, Parachutes. And Parachutes, to me, is a song that I feel like sort of uh, was a preview of what he'd end up doing on this year's solo album, Eddie Vedder. I will mention that when I get to this year. Gone. Uh, which, by the way, the song that I'm featuring, my song at the end of this, is a song called I'm Gone, which was released the year after this Pearl Jam, 2006. I released it in 2007, but I had written it years before that, several years before that. So it was just sort of a zeitgeisty coincidence that they had a song gone I absolutely loved that I was already working on and had already recorded by 2005, the principal work on this the song you'll hear later on, I'm Gone. Which brings us to 2009. And my last physical CD of theirs, uh, this is just a bifold, again, minimal plastic, called Backspacer. And uh, there's a case within a case where the CD is. That's what this disc is, kids. Uh, Cool thing when you slide it out, you know, like that. Very neat. They really always put a lot of thought into their packaging, and I'm sure they still do, and I kind of wish I... Still bought these. Uh, More like an illustration thing than a photograph thing, which is cool. And also, to me, the beginning of their third phase. Okay. Third and so far final phase. Uh, We'll see where they go. Uh, To me, the first phase had hopeful-sounding music, but not hopeful-sounding lyrics. The second phase didn't have either. I don't think either the music or lyrics were very hopeful. And the third phase, which they're still in, to me, has both... Uh, hopeful sounding music and hopeful lyrics, you know. This is also supposedly backspace to the first album where they sound like they're having fun. I think there's different ways to have fun, so I dispute that. But that came across more in their songs and the way they recorded. It's more tempered and mature, more hopeful, like I said. It's a brighter version. And it kind of makes sense that it comes after Eddie Vedder's first solo, solo album, which was the soundtrack to Into the Wild. It was like, coming back to the band and feeling that excitement of working with the band. And I, again, had to re-listen, but it, 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 I remembered I loved this album and it came right back to me almost as strongly as Yield did. My favorite's Gonna See My Friend, Get Some, Top, The Fixer, Just Breathe, Top One, Amongst the Waves, Top, Unthought Known, Force of Nature, The End, Excellent, just a great album all the way around. Uh, I'll pause for one second. Pause, unpause. Uh, for you to have, oh, let me do it again. Look for the cover for Lightning Bolt because I don't own that physical uh, cover. Pause, unpause. There you go. Lightning Bolt, great cover. Really like the cover. 2013. And this was a like for me. To me, this was when they truly shifted from young band, middle band, you know, doing the thing they do to more of an elder statesman kind of uh, of feel. 
And uh, or this was sort of the culmination of maybe the period before that. This is their last Brendan O'Brien collaboration so far. And to me, I think their relationship with him is like uh, Chili Peppers relationship with Rick Rubin in that they they do great work with and without, but are always better with. So I don't know if you plan on working with Brendan O'Brien again for your album after Gigaton, guys, but please consider it. Uh, and I know when you're looking for a different sound, you need a different producer, et cetera, et cetera, and you want to try different things. I get it. Lightning Bolt brought back more of the meatier feel of the first phase, but with the punkier guitar sound that they had incorporated after a couple of albums, there are more keyboards in there. My favorites off of this album are Getaway, Lightning Bolt, Infallible, Swallowed Hole, Sleeping by Myself. This is when I really should say they got to the point where, okay, uh, we've done it. We put out an album every two to four years. We're going to go ahead and take a break, which so many bands do. Some don't, but so many bands do. And took a seven-year break before they released another album uh, or album of original, like, first-run material. And that was in 2020. Gigaton. And what a year. This was a... This was such a welcome comeback for me to have them release a new album. I love the album. And not only that, to have it be so good and to have it be yet another example of a veteran artist doing an album that summarizes in all the best ways everything they've ever done, every phase, every nuance, every you know uh, left field turn, right field turn, all in one. The way, you know, the Chili Peppers' first of two albums, I guess, double albums, uh, was this year. And so many others, and I've mentioned it before, and I believe Gigaton does that. My favorites, just quickly, are Dance of the Clairvoyance, Quick Escape, Retrograde, River Cross. A lot of people like Super Blood Wolf Moon, I think it's called. Like it too, yeah, and I'd listen to this album again, absolutely. And then I just want to give a quick note before I get to the end songs about this year. And that is that 2022, beginning of the year, Eddie Vedder released a solo album called Earthling. I was curious. I'm like, I don't know. He can be a bit, you know, ponderous and everything. Let me listen to it. And then it blew me away. Just the absolute joy. Just the joy and excitement and energy and hope and fun. Great guests. You had uh, Chad Smith. Uh, You had Benmont Tench. Elton John, Ringo Starr, uh, his daughters, Harper Harper and Olivia Vedder, among many, many other guests. Uh, Stevie Wonder was on there. My favorites, and there were several, Invincibles, just what a great start. Uh, Power of Right, Long Way, Brother the Cloud, The Dark, beautiful song. Could be a, a Pearl Jam song. Try, interesting song. And Stevie Wonder's on that in a very prominent way. And uh, and there's several songs on here that you would not necessarily expect Eddie better to do. And he did them and did them well. Mrs. Mills, which is just like a Beatles homage, uh, doubly so because Ringo is the drummer on it, and the song On My Way. Uh, basically, the summary here is, doesn't matter which Pearl Jam album you pick up, you're going to find some good to great stuff on there. And even though I would rank... Uh, you know, yield as my top, and then you know the first three as amazing, and then the others that I mentioned. You're not going to go wrong picking up any of this. It's one of the few bands I don't uh, that I like that I don't have a greatest hits album of because I didn't need it. 
and because I think it would probably be too large. Which gets to the end of this, uh, you know, almost uh, podcast, and that is the song I chose as a spotlight song is Rex's song "I'm Gone," which is the opening track of uh, our album "Parts and Labor." Uh, uh, it was lyrics that I had written, meant to be more uh, intimate music, dark, contemplative. Years before, when I was having a really tough year and feel like I was sort of slowly disappearing from my own life. And uh, you'll hear that in the lyrics, uh, very, very much so. And the person, you know, or people that you're with, trying to hold on to them, you don't feel like they're there either, you know. And then I realized as it developed that it needed to be uh, musically stronger and musically more powerful. So it went from being more of a intimate kind of piano thing to just a full-on rock thing. And when you add those kind of like dark intimacy with the full rock and certain experimental qualities to it, you can see why it, it is very Pearl jammy. But you may hear something different. I'd love to know what you think. So please, in a few seconds, listen to that. Stick around after that to see and hear my acoustic version of Pearl Jam's song Alive. And then comment. Tell me what you're thinking. I want to hear what you agree, disagree with, what you like or dislike. What I missed, what I didn't miss, what you loved about what I said, what you hated. Because as always, my objectives here are music, conversation, and connection. Thank you, as always, for watching and listening. And I will talk to you and Kevin Stroud next week. Yeah.
Son, she said, have I got a little story for you? What you thought was your daddy was nothing but a... While you were sitting home alone at age 13, real daddy was dying. Sorry you didn't see him, but I'm glad we talked. Oh, I, oh, oh I'm still alive. Across a young man's room She said I'm ready For you I can't remember Anything to this very day Except the look The look Oh you know where And now I can't see I just stare I'm still alive Something wrong, she said. Well, of course there is. You're still alive, she said. Oh, and do I deserve to be? Is that the question? And if so, if so, who answers? Who answers? Ah, oh, I'm still alive. Yeah. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 